It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll right get now, through the it. COVID-19 vaccines are are available to millions of Americans, and soon they will be available to everyone. This vaccine means hope. It will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. I want to go back to work and I want to be able to move around. To visit with Michelle's mom, the hugger, and see her on her birthday. You know what I'm really looking forward to is going to opening day in Texas Ranger Stadium with a full stadium. We've lost enough people, and we've suffered enough damage. In order to get rid of this pandemic, it's important for our fellow citizens to get vaccinated. I'm getting vaccinated because we want this pandemic to end as soon as possible. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. So roll up your sleeve and do your part. This is our shot. Now it's up to you. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. We had a good one today coming up in the third half of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. We're going to talk with Adam Catt, who uh, explains what it was like to be uh, deemed an essential worker in his book, Life on the Grocery Line, A Frontline Experience in a Global Pandemic. In the second hour, we're going to talk with um, an architect from uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, I think you pronounce her name Ilianda Schinder. And uh, she talks about, uh, she has a new book talk that uh, is called Housing for Humans, which rethinks unrealistic uh, uh, models that uh, kindle the nationwide crisis. Basically, it's... Uh, uh, from an architect's ex, uh, perspective, um, lessons learned from the pandemic. But this first hour, we're going to talk with uh, my guest this hour, uh, considers himself a lawyer by training, a photographer by passion, who has uh, trekked and photographed on the seven continents, but turned his attention to uh, money and politics uh, in a new book, called Democracy of Dollars, Where Natural and Constitutional Rights Go to the Highest Bidder, by Richard Jacobs. He joins me by phone. Hi, Dick. Welcome to the show. 
Good morning. Glad to be here. I hope I got that introduction okay. Um, yes, sir, you did. The the um, the book is is pretty thoroughly researched, and I want to talk about some of the research that went into the book. And and but but let's start with why you decided it was important to write this book, and 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 maybe a little bit about how this book extends out from that old adage that uh, the U.S. has the uh, the best government that money can buy. Well, what happened was uh, when I retired uh, in about night or 2015, I had just written a book, which you referred to, Wonderlust, which was a, what I'd done in my hobbies. I'd been able to tour the seven continents, and I wrote a book about my experiences with my photographs. And then I started to do some work on what I'd written about, about our, our environment. And I chose to work with our Children's Trust, which is a charity out in Oregon. But they have a great mission, and that's to representing the youth of our world, really, in order to try to get a, a healthy climate for us all. And after working on with them for several years, um, I realized that the problem was the government. The government was not facing up to serious problems to solve for people. And I started to do some research, I, and ended up uh, the research appears in Democracy of Dollars as to what prohibits us from really solving our very difficult problems that we have in this world today. It is, is it as simple as assigning it to the Supreme Court uh, Citizens United decision? No, that, it's, it's far more complex and, and has a much broader base than that. The, the problem is certainly money affects what goes on, and money dominates. But what has happened is the whole system is fundamentally deteriorated. Uh, and I don't think if they reverse Citizens United, I don't think that would change what's going on. It has to get uh, the two things that the Supreme Court, as I said in the book, has to reassume its role as, as really representing the people. And they're not doing that. They're representing... In effect, they're representing special interests. And the second thing, and probably the most important thing, is that we as people no longer can stand aside and let go, what's going on go on. We have to really become active. We have to, we have to create a change. But have we become too divided as a country to, to, to really tackle those bigger problems that... that the the one thing we all agree on are are universally uh, accepted is going on. Well, we certainly have become divided, and that's a real problem. Um, but if you go back into history, we've been divided a lot of times. We if you go back even to the Revolutionary War, that wasn't something that the Americans as a whole agreed ought to be done. From studies of it, about a third of the people truly implemented the revolution, about a third of the people just stood by and watched, and about a third of the people representatives were thought that the British were right. So we need a, a, a group of us to really institute change. We, we, it would be nice if we all could do it or would, but we, but we won't. We, we, have to, we have to work with where we are, which is right now a divided voice. And, you know, it's interesting when you talk about that, you know, breaking it up into thirds, that sounds a little bit like uh, 
analysis of uh, presidential campaigns, <laughs> splitting Republicans and Democrats with about a third each and in, in, uh, uh, undecideds and independents uh, sort of making up that other third. Um, in, in the process of, of, of doing this uh, research that you did, what... Um, what was it? I'm not sure even how to ask this, Dick. Um, what were some of the were there surprises for you? Let me just put it that way. Well, okay. I think there were two things that that really probably triggered me to do this. One is instead of us helping our children's trust, and and their prime suit against the federal government, which was filed in 2015, was Juliana versus the United States, which they were in a very good and clear case it stated how it was that we the government were not taking care of the climate and we are going to suffer because of that and then we come into court cases about it and the court actually admitted that that was true with the 11th circuit court went in the book i put in there the agenda from where it went between the supreme court and the court of appeals and the 11th circuit and so on um and and what they did, they admitted that we were not doing this. But what they said was that this question is a political question. By a political question, they mean it was beyond the court's ability to solve the problem. It had to be solved by one of the political branches, which would be the uh, executive branch or the legislative branch. And then I looked at that and I said, well, that's impossible. I said, it, and I used an example in the book. I said, that's like a Farmer Brown in his hen house telling his hens who are being attacked by the fox that they have to go to the fox to work out their problem. And that's, <laughs> really, what the court, that's really what the court was saying. It was saying, hey, we can't do this. Go back to the, to, to the political branches. Well, the political branches were the cause of the problem. So you don't go to the cause to solve a problem. You go, you go to... A, a, as independent party as you can get to solve the problem, and so that was that was the realization. Then I started work on a diagram, which I realize is a little hard to discuss in a, in a, without a visual. But I drew a diagram, a triangle of how the how our democracy was supposed to work, and a democracy is based on uh, a Republican a democracy that we have a Republican democracy is based on the fact that it has a strong base of the people at the bottom. The people have adopted a constitution, excuse me, and the constitution then is a delegation of power to the legislature to pass laws, and a delegation of another power to the executive branch to implement the, law, the laws. And sitting on the side is the Supreme Court, which is supposed to be the neutral agency to make sure everybody plays by the rules. Is as Supreme Court Justice Roberts said, they, they call the balls and strikes. That's the way it's supposed to work. But what has happened, and has happened o over more the, uh, decades beyond the, the case, um, United case that, that everyone refers to, it's, it's really upside down. By that I mean the people, instead of being at the base, they're at a very small pinnacle at the bottom where their voice is not even being listened to. Uh, and if you go through the whole triangle, you'll, you'll see, and there's an illustration of this in the book, 
that we've really over-delegated to the executive branch. It's almost like we have an imperial presidency now. And an imperial presidency makes the laws, enforces the laws, interprets the laws, and it does so really as special interests dictate it should be done. And that's really the upside-down triangle that we have, that we have to write and get back to where the people have the, the strong voice, the people are at the base of making our government work. And there, there are people who are talking about two things that, that they hope will, will make change. One is campaign finance reform, and the other is um, citizens redistricting committees. Mm-hmm. Um, and and what are you, what are your thoughts on on those, Dick? Is that a way to start putting the toothpaste back in the tube? One of the things you mentioned is citizen redistricting, which 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 to me is an extremely important thing. Um, and because what what we have today is what's called gerrymandering, where the the boundaries of the districts which determine who votes for who are really determined politically, and they're determined in a way in which the people don't have a full voice, but the party in power is kept in power. So you have to get rid of gerrymandering and, and get district voting districts done where everybody has a voice. That is an extremely important thing. Um, the unfortunate thing is, and this is a chapter actually in the book, is that the Supreme Court a few years ago, decided that gerrymandering is okay. They said it's up to the states and that the federal court don't have an opportunity or the right to do that. That was a 5-4 decision. Um, it wasn't a unanimous decision, and it's very contrary to what they decided in the past. For example, when I was in law school back in the 1960s, Gerrymandering wasn't really legal. Um, the, the Warren Court, which was the court back when I was in law school, decided that uh, gerrymandering wasn't right. But the Supreme Court, just a few years ago, said, well, they didn't really decide that partisanship gerrymandering, which is political gerrymandering, wasn't right. They were talking about such things as racial gerrymandering, so we have a bifurcation. We have a, the law now that says you can't gerrymander voting districts if it's racially discriminating, but you can gerrymander voting districts if it's partisanship discriminating. But if you look at the reality of life, they're both the same. You know, um, if, you, if you gerrymander to discriminate against people, what fundamentally it's what they do, is gerrymandered to discriminate people primarily in concentration, um, population concentration areas, which are normally more racial than non-population concentration areas. It's really the same thing. So Dick, we have to get that straightened out. Dick, I have to put a comma here. I have to go to break. Can you stick around for a few minutes so we can talk about sure, this? Sure, I'll be more? glad. Great. My, guest, glad. Is, my guest is uh, Richard Jacobs, author of Democracy of Dollars. 
where natural and constitutional rights go to the highest bidder. And we'll talk some more with Dick right after Hello this. Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all always. It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a kind and check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. 
where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. We continue our conversation with Richard Jacobs, the author of a new book called Democracy of Dollars, Where Natural and Constitutional Rights Go to the Highest Bidder. He joins me by phone. Um, Hi, Dick. Welcome back, and thanks for sticking around. Sorry to make you sit through all that. That's not a problem. Enjoy it. Um, Dick, we were talking a little bit about about redistricting, um, but but what about this idea of campaign finance reform? Is that realistic to consider as part of a plan to, as as I described it uh, before we went to break, putting the toothpaste back in the tube? I, I think it would be very nice if it was able to be done, but I, it seems to me that it's it's in this day and age it may be very difficult to do. Um, The, the problem is, you know, there's been talk about, for example, having the government provide money so campaigns uh, are, are more fair between those who have money and those who don't. But that seems to be very difficult to do because how, how, how would you determine it and how would you spread it out? Uh, I think the government was wrong in the sense of deciding that campaign contributions can be can be unlimited in a sense. Uh, and we have so many ways of giving money today which are not traceable so we don't even know where, where it's all coming from and that is necessary but it, but the so- solution to the problem has to be also more fundamental than that Dick, in your, uh, in your book, Democracy of Dollars, where natural and constitutional rights go to the highest bidder most, most of us are familiar with um, you know, the idea of campaign contributions and, and how um, very often the campaign that raises the most money wins. That's not always true, but generally it's true. And so we have some sense that money is impacting who gets elected and might have influence over how they might vote on certain kinds of issues. But what are some of the ways that you've seen the highest bidder uh, taking over in in other parts of uh, our natural and constitutional rights? Okay, you raise a good question. The practical problem, as I said, it's beyond just campaign finance monies. It it it's also who raises the money, and this is a subject that I do spend a fair amount of time talking about. The practical problem is we have lobbyists which are marginally re- regulated. But lobbyists, generally speaking, raise money for, for people running for office. Lobbyists offer people in office jobs when they get out of office. If you check and see how many congressmen go to work for lobby organizations after they're through, and you think about the fact that a lobbyist gets to them and say, hey, look, when you're, when, when you're done with this political stuff, come to work for us. And they do that while they're still in office. 
that influences their decisions um, dramatically. Uh, the second way in which it, this occurs is that lobbyists quit working temporarily for their firms and they go to work for the government. That occurs in, in, in every agency. And so they go to work for the government. They make rules and regulations when they're there that tend to favor their clients. And then they quit working for the government and they go to back and work for their lobby organizations or their advisory organizations to favor their clients. That has to be addressed, and that's probably more important to address that than it is purely the money. It's who raises the money and how do they integrate themselves into our government and shape what our government does and then go back and take advantage of what they did. There was an article recently published, it was after I wrote the book, um, about, C, uh, about CPA firms who send their people into the government to work in the tax section and they make rules about tax laws and exemptions and then they go back and work for the CPA firms and help their clients not pay taxes. That has got to stop. That is probably the worst way in which we operate. Well, and there's there's another one that came to mind as you were explaining that, Dick, about these different um, regulatory agencies that often claim they don't have enough people to oversee the industries they're responsible for. And so they permit a kind of self-policing where, you know, companies are, are filling out their own audits and, and turning in paperwork, and it's just being taken as uh, as true whether it, it is or not. There's no no real oversight. That's correct, and, and you, you raised two points there together. You know, for example, when um, Trump was president, he appointed a coal lobbyist to an environmental agency. You know, what, that isn't exactly what the idea was in mind when administrative agencies or fourth branch of government was, was instigated. Technically, the Constitution doesn't provide for administrative agencies. Of course, it's just decided. Um, that that's implied in the Constitution. But the administrative agencies, now part of the federal government, which are part of the executive branch, are our biggest lawmakers. They publish regulations in a, in a volume about ten times as much as Congress makes laws. Then the court has said um, they can interpret their own laws, I mean their own regulations to a certain degree, and they have enforcement regulations as to how they enforce them. So we have a whole body of, of law being instituted in the administrative agencies, and it's very closely tied to lobbying and to industries that they regulate. And, and that isn't a good way to do it. One of the things that I've been concerned about is this uh, belief that, that people have that by creating term limits for elected officials that somehow they're going to root out the the evil and get new blood in you know more frequently my concern is in in your you've been talking about it the last couple of minutes is um the the power of lobbying firms and the um you know the administrative uh, professionals that work within the government that don't turn over 
and it, it just it seems like by creating term limits where we the people so to speak are ceding the uh, the real power in government to um, these long-term entities well they may be it, it may be ceding the control more to the lobbyists because you go into government, you go back to the lobbyists. I mean, you know, it, it, that that's what has to be broken. There's been also talk about about term limits for Supreme Court justices, and that has some merit, I think, and because we, we've gotten to the problem now where the Senate doesn't do what it's supposed to do when it does has to deal with giving advice and consent to the president. Um, if you go back to the Constitution as to what was intended, you read the Federalist Papers, the, the Senate was viewed as sort of the house of lords. It was supposed to be the very elitist and the best thinkers that we could have, and they would independently give advice and consent to the president and keep everything in line. Uh, but, of course, as we know what's going on today, that isn't what happened. So uh, that's we have all these interrelated problems we have to figure out how to solve. Yeah, it's it's we've we've gotten really familiar with this uh, phenomenon of of presidents not appointing uh, nominees for the Supreme Court that they want, but based on who they think they can get approved or or who the Senate will allow them. Yeah, I mean, and if, as you know, is what happened. Of course, when when Obama made an appointment to the Supreme Court of Garland, he never even got a hearing because the Republicans, instead of uh, trying to give advice and consent, which is what they're supposed to do, and which they've done for a long time in the past, um, just are use, using their, their, their advice and consent as a matter of blocking out what a president of another party happens to think we ought to be doing. Um, we have to reorient that, and that's going to be a very tough problem because we're so dominated now by winner-take-all types of political philosophies. And one of the things I talk about in, in Democracy at Ours is the importance of representation of diversity of thought. And In fact, I'm even in favor of a lot of 5-4 decisions by the Supreme Court because that represents the fact that we have a diversity of thought and everybody's getting a voice. And in the long run, the descents of the four to the decisions of the five will influence where we go. But we have to have that conversation back and forth between each of us in order to come up to the right decisions. Well, in your book, and, and it's um, very thoughtfully uh, written and laid out, um, it, and it covers just so many different aspects of how money has has corrupted our our various systems within uh, the government and our democracy at large um, but a lot of people are writing about the decline in and the broken system um, do you have um, a recipe for how maybe to repair some of the damage? Well, the, uh, the repair has to start with the people. And, and we've, we've gotten into a system today where people are 
too too much have been ignoring the importance of politics to their life, and and, and we have to get the voice of the people. We have to get people educated to the fact that they will make their voices known, and they will have they will have to really ultimately direct where we go. I don't think there's a mechanical process we can use. Yes, we've got to have uh, get rid of gerrymandering. That's pretty obvious to me if we can do that. Uh, and there is a federal election law pending right now which might do that. Uh, but that's one of many things we can do. But the, but the ultimate thing is is that people have to get back and get involved in in the most recent election, the presidential election, two-thirds of the people voted, which means a third of the people didn't vote. We have to get better on that. When you deal with the midterm elections, the, the primary elections and the midterm elections, generally speaking, you're lucky if you get 30% of the people to vote. Right. That means that means that you, what happens is the extremists vote. So the extremists get their candidates in, the people, the independents, who in many states like Florida where I live, can't vote, have nothing to say about who the candidates are. Uh, that's another thing that should be changed. I think independents should be allowed to vote in the primaries. Um, we have to get this to be an important thing. And we need leadership. We have to develop leadership that will encourage that. And that's going to be a very big and a very difficult and a long-term job. How do we, how do we get trust back into the into the equation dick because so many people are they've given up on on voting and participating because they've been led to believe that that they can't trust news they can't trust science they can't trust elected officials they can't trust agencies so they just ignore it all you're right i mean that, that that's the big problem you know um it was a study done of, of the 2016 election, and the conclusion was it was the non-voters that really determined the outcome. And they didn't vote because of the fact that they didn't trust what was going on. They didn't like either, any of the candidates. But this has to be done consistently and over a long period of time from our education system on up into our dealings. We have to get people to want to have a good government, enough that they'll set aside the issues that you're talking about and, and get involved. I give you a very personal example. I've been working with my my law school. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I want to set up a center for justice to deal with some of these issues. And I asked a good friend to help me finance what we're talking about. And he's very hesitant to do so for exactly the same reasons that you're talking about. You know, he says there's no hope. I don't think. We should be in that position. If you go back through our history and study it, there have been situations like this in the past. If you go back to the Gilded Age, the late 1800s, that was a pretty bad time. If you go back to just after the Civil War, that was a pretty bad time. So these these kinds of situations we find ourselves in come and go as part of being in life. And we just cannot give up. We have to keep working on it, and we have to try to make it work. And enough people have to say, yeah, I'm going to do that. That's where we have to do it. I don't, I don't see a magic bullet to make it work. We just have to have the strength and personalities to go ahead and make it work. Is it your intention uh, in, in your book, Democracy of Dollars, to basically make a laundry list of the things that need change? Um, 
I didn't do that in Democracy of Dollars. I, I, as I was writing it, I wanted to state the problem, and I closed it with a chapter of the voice of the people, which touches on some of the issues that you're talking about right now. My plan is, is to come up with a sequel to it or a second edition to it, which will deal with that. I, I thought it would be too long to put it all in one place, but the answer is I hope to be able to address that, yes. I'm fascinated by the fact that several people that I've talked to and interviewed, people who've written books about, you know, Twilight of Empire and, um, you know, just the negativity of, of the way things are, the, the way that politics has, has become. American Schism was another book I was trying to think of that talks about the... Uh, the the two different enlightenments and it's i'm i'm fascinated by the fact that that people that that write these books that sound like doom and gloom actually come out of the writing um more hopeful and and with more of a belief that that we can make the changes we want if we just do the things that need to be done is that sort of your philosophy as well, Dick? Did you come out of this it, book it, thinking, we can fix this? Yes, it is. I, I, it, it's, it's, uh, in the studying of what has happened over the last 232 years, the country you know, has really existed as a country, and the ups and the downs and the bad times and the good times, we have the ability to make things right, but it takes us to do it. And, we, and I think ultimately we will. My hope is that we don't have, that we have to get down so far that the comeback is really, really painful. And that, that, that to me is, 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 is the real risk. And we I, will ultimately change this. What has to happen for people to be convinced that we're not already there? I think I mean, at the point where the change is, I mean, I think we are there. The question is, how, how do we convince people to do it? I, the, um, <laughs> That's true. That is the big, that, that is the biggest issue. You know, you know as I say, my, my naivety with this whole thing started in my, my work in climate change, which came from what I call dirty hands, wet feet learning. My experiences of trekking the seven continents, seeing what was going on, and realizing what had to be done. That's what motivated me to get started. Then I got into climate change, and I realized we're never going to get the climate change issues under control unless we address the fundamental problems with our government and how it approaches problems. That's kind of how I got started in this whole thing. And we just have to be strong about it and get people to join. We don't need everybody to join. We need enough people to be convinced that we have to do this to make it work. You think it works best from the bottom up? It has to work from the bottom up. Yeah. Well, Dick, this is um, fascinating stuff, and we're just scratching the surface. I can't believe how fast the time is uh, is going by. But I do want to ask you now, you've written uh, Wonderlust about your trek to the uh, taking pictures on the, on the seven continents. Um, and now this book, uh, Democracy of Dollars, and you're talking about a possible sequel to this book. Have you got the writing bug now, Dick? Uh, I've always had it, I guess. I mean, this is 
I mean, I've never been a, a, a full-time writer, obviously, with a full-time lawyer, but I've written several books about my experiences where I thought I had lessons that I had learned that would be helpful to other people to learn. I mean, I've written some law books, but set those aside. Back in the 1990, 1991, I had a book called Crash Landing, which was my experience with working my way through a troubled bank and trying to trying to save a business failure. And then, of course, and then I had Wonderlust in this book. And they all have concluded with the same really fundamental conclusion that it's up to us. And I used... Uh, in the last two books, one in one of the last in this book, um, the story about Albert Schweitzer, who was my favorite philosopher. And uh, he wrote, in the 1920s, he wrote the first two volumes of a four-volume set of books that he had planned called The Philosophy of Civilization. And when he, in the 1960s, when Norm Cousins was interviewing him in, a in Africa doing his, his biography of Schweitzer, he said, why didn't you ever complete the last two volumes, and he said, because I intended my life to be my argument, and I think that's what it is. That's what we have to do. We have to do it ourselves. Well, Dick, this is um, this is fascinating stuff, and it's getting uh, really good reviews. Um, I always. Well, I want to thank you for sharing your thoughts from both in the book and this morning with me and the listeners. Um, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website, Dick? Yes, I do. It's called thebrutuspapers.com. Brutuspapers.com. And it, the, it comes from actually the... Anti-Federalist papers were were written as a Brutus paper, statements of things that were going wrong and needed to be corrected. So that's how I came up with the name of the Brutus papers. Well, Dick, thank you so much for spending this time with me. And uh, by all means, keep up the good work. Well, thank you. And I enjoyed our talk. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Again, that was uh, Richard Jacobs. He is the author of Democracy of Dollars, Where Natural and Constitutional Rights Go to the Highest Bidder. Uh, and um, he is uh, self-described as uh, a lawyer by training, a photographer by passion, who has trekked and photographed on the seven continents. But uh, this new book is uh, a different trek altogether. It's getting uh, great reviews. Now, we're going to take a uh, short break and let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. They are uh, WFOV 92.1 LPFM, um, Our Voices Radio in Flint. They are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my good friend Paul Herring. Um, if you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. And don't forget, you can go to our website and uh, go to the show archive under audio. And you can uh, go back and scroll through any of the interviews uh, and the great guests that we uh, have on the show. Also, I've been talking for weeks about uh, now that people are starting to... to 
come out of quarantine a little bit of uh, getting armchair politics out on the road and we have already booked our first uh, remote which will happen October 27th armchair politics will uh, as as we have done in the past around Halloween time we will be broadcasting from the Hell Saloon in Hell Michigan Hi this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is... This is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the back. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. 
The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program.com Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Here is some more of the rich humor of Brooks Hayes of Arkansas, special assistant to the president. My grandson, a 15-year-old red-headed, wise-cracking high school lad, um, loves to cut me down to size. This grandson was in to see me recently. He saw some books on my desk passed over some that I had produced, only two. I'm, I haven't produced them in great volume, but uh, one, I, and I make this reference, uh, believe me, with some sense of modesty, the first book was one produced for the Baptists. When I was elected president of the convention, they thought they should have a book. <laughs> and then later, the University of North Carolina asked me for a book on the Little Rock story. My uh, father was asked when this book came out, uh, Mr. Hayes, have you read Brooks's last book? He said, I hope so. <laughs> and uh, then uh, the... Um, but uh, this lad uh, didn't comment on those two books. He looked at the third one, which said, How to Get and Keep the Job You Want. He said he was four years late getting that one to you. <laughs> but uh, I've been quite happy in this assignment. Uh, even uh, the uh, proximity to Arthur Schlesinger is enjoyable. The president put me there, I think, so if any hard questions came up, uh, Mr. Schlesinger had me. And, uh, <laughs> someone in a dinner meeting, uh, someone I was with in Washington at a banquet recently, uh, just that, and he said, well, the trouble with uh, you and Arthur Schlesinger is that you're both answering questions nobody's asked, <laughs> uh, which, uh, which I submit was a thoroughly partisan comment. Uh, well, we're at the east end of the White House, and we're easy to reach, and I hope if you're there, you'll come to see us. Uh, someone said, Mr. Hayes, are you close to Mr. Kennedy? And I said, philosophically and politically and intellectually, yes, very close. I said, physically, uh, I'm over here on the east end. It's like the little lady said when I asked her in Pope County if she had seen Halley's Comet. She said, just from a distance. And <laughs> But in this election year in particular, I have to be careful. There is a difference, you know. I remember one year when one of our colleagues had been through the South, and when he got back, he confronted an Alabama member with uh, this uh, comment. said, Bill, you're in trouble. I've been in your district, and Henry Wilson's announced against you. Well, he said, I'm not surprised. I know that fellow. He's a thief and a crook and a liar. He's the kind of man that would run against me. <laughs> well, he said, I've got more bad news. said, George Johnson's going to announce against you tomorrow. Well, he said he's the same type of individual. He's a thoroughly evil person. He's lucky to be out of the penitentiary. And then he said, look, I'm just kidding you. I saw them both. They're for you and sent you their regards. <laughs> and, uh, uh, he, uh, 
produced this comment. Well, see what you've made me do. I've said some ugly things about two of the sweetest, finest men I've ever known. I remembered uh, the experience of 1933. I ran in a special election in that year for a seat in the Congress, the one that I was to win uh, nine years later. But in 1933, the Depression year, and it was a terrible year, and this is a rural district, remember. Uh, maybe you suffered too from the Depression, but as one of my farmer friends said, Brooks, this Depression wouldn't have been near so bad if it hadn't come along right in the middle of hard times. <laughs> said that to a Georgia audience not long ago, and the chairman said, well, Mr. Hayes, Arkansas was not alone. Georgia had it, too. I said to him, he said, uh, I asked a fellow once, do you remember 1933? He said, sure. That's the year I broke my arm. And I said, uh, broke your arm? He said, yes, I was eating my breakfast, and I fell out of the persimmon tree. <laughs> so... Uh, Some of my first lessons, I should say, if you will permit me to enter this delicate area, were in this little church down in Arkansas, a little congregation. And in uh, my first lessons, really, in democracy, were in that Baptist church. You non-Baptists, forgive me. This is not propaganda. Uh, it just happened to be a Baptist church, and I am a Baptist. I'm almost as bad as Brother Puckett, who opposed the consolidation of our church with the Christian church. He said, I'm a Baptist, and nobody's going to make a Christian out of me. And, and, uh, and sometimes there'd be differences over whether to buy uh, some, a new organ or not. And sometimes those are interesting discussions. I remember when they wanted to buy a new chand uh, buy a chandelier. Not a new one, but because the ladies wanted a chandelier. And the, one of the deacons said, well, now we can't do it. Said if we went to order it, we wouldn't know how to spell it. <laughs> and said, uh, and, and, and he said, anyway, uh, if we got one, nobody knew how to play it. <laughs> And he said, anyway, I'm telling you, I think all the deacons agree that if we're going to spend any money on anything new, we need a new light fixture. <laughs> this was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
pilots, get off of my lawn. We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here. <laughs>